Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We will cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Julie Gunderson, at Julie underscore Gund on Twitter. We have multiple show hosts for this episode. Today, I'm also joined by... Alex Solomon, at A-L-X-S-O-L-O-M-O-N on Twitter. George Miranda, at GMiranda23 on Twitter. Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And Scott McAllister, at ST McAllister on Twitter. Today, we're going to talk about our learnings at PagerDuty and the industry over the years. We have the advocacy team with a combined 70 years of experience, and we want to share the main learnings over the years with all of our listeners. To get us started, let's frame the conversation by describing what real-time operations is and why it matters for organizations, for anybody that's new to this. Alex, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, so so real-time operations, uh, to me, what that means is it's about dealing with problems and uh, incidents and alerts in real time, uh, making sure that uh, the right people are pulled in whenever you have uh, an issue with your production software, and only the right people. Those teams and those individuals are uh, looped in quickly, looped in uh, via multiple channels to make sure that they get there fast. And then once they're uh, paged and looped in, it's about collaboration, it's about communication, it's about coordination, it's about defining clear roles for all the individuals and making sure that they can collaborate and communicate effectively to make decisions quickly and resolve the the underlying problem with those production systems. That's a really good point, Alex, and I think that's a great definition. To me, just to sort of put another little bit of polish on that, is it's about moving away from queued work, right? Like it's not just sort of taking tasks one right after the other, and then they have a sense of being done, and then somebody else does their part. When I think about real-time operations, it's the fact that we are always in this mode, right? And that even extends to how we think about incidents and how we're continually learning from them. Yeah, and I think the thing that I would add to that is that it's not just about moving away from some of those definitions, but it's also moving away from the idea that it's just web services, right? I think, especially on this podcast, we tend to talk about operating software in production, and that's the thing that we center around. But I think, generally speaking, we think about you know, the services that our teams provide, right? The code that we ship into production and making sure those things are available. But this extends to every facet of, you know, online operations that might impact our team, right? Whether that's the web services that we provide, right? And the code that we're writing and how that runs in production or production systems that we rely on, right? Like maybe a CRM if you're a sales team or maybe like a, you know, an outreach tool if you're a marketing team. I think the the definition is pretty broad and that's something to keep in mind as well. But on that note, right? I think there are a number of misconceptions that folks might have about real-time operations. So on that note, the thing that we typically do in this show is talk about myths that we would like to debunk. So this one, Alex, since we haven't had you here before, I'm going to pick on you and ask, what myth do you think you would like to debunk about real-time operations? Sure. I I can give you an easy one that I see uh, a lot when working with customers, especially larger enterprise customers. The the myth that you can buy a a software platform like a PagerDuty or a Datadog or a New Relic or any of these 
uh, this uh, toolbox that that we all have when we're running uh, digital systems, and that that buying the platform will solve all of your problems. Will be your silver bullet. In my experience, uh, what I see over and over is that yes, you can buy the platform, but uh, the hard part is changing culture and transforming culture and transforming the way people work, and that comes down to people and process. So in in our case, it's a lot about transitioning to a DevOps oriented culture. Uh, it's about the concept of full service ownership and ensuring that the engineers who are writing production systems are also responsible for supporting those systems, uh, which which inevitably means that those folks will go on call, the devs will go on call directly, and when something breaks, they'll get paged for, for the systems that they own. I think another really popular misconception is that we can, with enough information, we can be totally predictive. Right. And this is where hindsight bias tends to bite us in when we're thinking about learning from an incident, which is when we look back at things, we, we say, well, we could, if we had enough information, we could have predicted this failure and we can then guard ourselves against failure. And that will always happen. And the reality is we can do a lot to kind of steady ourselves and be ready to respond and take information we've already had. But our systems are so complex, right? That there's no way to be fully predictive and we need to understand how we can make our systems, our socio-technical systems more resilient rather than thinking if we just build in enough failover, enough automation or write the best possible runbook ever, we'll be able to prevent failure. So I think a big myth is that we can prevent uh, any kind of failure as, as opposed to being able to be resilient and respond and minimize and mitigate the impact of that failure and learn from it. Yeah, to that end, Maddie, I think uh, in, in my mind, I, I correlate failure to changes. If you're if you're taking a production system and you're changing it all the time, you're making deploys, you're changing config, you're scaling up, you're evolving the system on a daily or weekly basis. Then uh, with that change will come some failure because you won't be able to predict everything at a time and prevent all of these failures. But the the ideal situation is that your systems are designed for failure. You know, they can, you can, you have canary builds, you have ways to detect problems and rectify them quickly so that failure does happen, but it is small and the impact is small when it does happen. Thank you both. So with all of us on here, let's, let's talk about what we've learned at our time at PagerDuty that we want to share. Maddie, do you want to go ahead and start us off? I got to say that I think when I will look back at the things that I've learned over my time at PagerDuty, one of the most impactful really is leveraging the incident command system for incident response. You know, it's something I was a little aware of before I came to PagerDuty, but it's, it's something we believe in really strongly here. We've written about it. You know, you can go to response.pagerduty.com to read all about it. And it's, it's really such an impactful way to think about when you're in that mode of responding to an incident. Uh, and it's had a major impact in how I think about res- response, really. You know, and I, I I think, you know, George might might be chuckling not to put words in his mouth because he has a background in this before, so he didn't necessarily learn it. But for me, someone who doesn't have a background in emergency response like that, uh, it was really educational and uh, transformative in a lot of ways to how I think about incidents. And for me, I'll switch tracks a little bit. My time at PagerDuty has been entirely remote. And as the world right now is going increasingly more remote, I think it's apt 
to, to think about how to be successful as a remote worker. For me, I've learned that you need to take breaks. I need to get out. I actually schedule time for walks every morning and every afternoon just to get out so I can get my head in the right spot and also so that I can keep my body moving. Uh, but also a key thing that I learned between the, my current remote job and a job I had before where I was remote was the need of self-promotion. Now for myself, I'm not the kind of person who sits there and says, look at me, I'm so amazing. Look at my stuff I've done. But when you're remote, you don't really see people around you very often. You kind of need to be loud about the things that you accomplish and the tasks that you complete and the good feedback you get from customers and things of that nature. So I, I think that's something to, to keep in mind as a remote worker. And finally, as an advocate, I, I have a, a different focus than the rest of you on this team. You, you all talk about DevOps, thought leadership and things. And I focus more on developers and how developers interact with PagerDuty. And a lot of times people think that advocacy is all about conferences and speaking and traveling all over the world. While that is a part of the job, uh, especially as a developer advocate, when you're working with an API or talks or an API and building apps, excuse me thinking about talks. We always talk too. And that's to to be uh, an internal advocate, someone who advocates for the API, who works with the teams internally as we build APIs to work with the world as we're connecting with each other and staying real time and putting information where people are already working. Uh, it's good to have a, an opinion of someone who's seeing the rest of the industry and the, how the customers and partners are doing with our API and taking that back to our internal product teams with the API. And it's been fun to watch the differences that we're making on our APIs today at PagerDuty. I think we have great APIs, but I think we can always improve. And we've been making great improvements uh, through the conversations we've been having, taking the stuff that I've been learning with our customers and with the partner developers and sharing it with our API teams. And so those are a couple of things that I've learned in my my time at PagerDuty. Scott, you put a lot of stuff out there in that one chunk. And one of the things that I really like about that is that it's basically two sides of the same coin, right? You were talking about advocating internally to the company and externally to developers. And at the same time, that's kind of what you were saying about remote work, right? It's really about how you communicate in, in different scenarios as folks are distributed. So I wanted to ask you, is PagerDuty the first time that you had a fully distributed team? Or when you've worked remotely in the past, has it you know been you being remote and a couple of other folks that are in the office? How has that usually played out for you? So my previous work experience where I was working remote, I had an office. I live in Western Washington outside of Seattle. And so I had there was an office that our company had in Bellevue, but nobody on my team was in that office. And so my managers would either be on the East Coast or I think one time I had a manager in Montana. We were pretty distributed as it worked. And so it wasn't necessarily a situation like we have here at PagerDuty where a lot of the company is based out of offices and then our team is remote. So uh, I guess to put a long answer on that question, yeah, it, it was kind of a, my team was remote, but we had an office. For me, this is actually my very first remote job. Uh, in my last role, um, where I was kind of on a team by myself, I still sat with the engineers. I still had that social aspect, uh, even though I did something completely different. And I will say that the thing that makes it the easiest is our culture of video on all the time. I love that. Uh, it's hard for me when I join calls now and there are people that are not on video because it at least gives you that sense of community and interaction. And with our team being fully distributed, I think it still helps us 
have that sense of actual team. I'm going to put out one little bit of trivia for folks that are listening to this podcast. In terms of video on, that's one of the things that we do when we record this podcast. Even though we don't provide video, we're all looking at each other so we can pick up on some of those bits of communication and inflection and tone that you might miss otherwise when you don't get to see folks. And I think that's one of those details about remote work that often gets overlooked. So I'm really glad you pointed that out, Julie. Right, Julie, I, I agree completely. I think our team at PagerDuty, especially our community and advocacy team, have a great relationship with each other because we connect over that video chat every day. And uh, we make that uh, connection as a team. So we have. I feel like I have a good relationship with each member of the team. It's almost like I know you almost maybe even better than I would if I if I worked in an office with you. I don't know. And on that note, we're going to talk about something super timely, which is the shift to remote work. And I think this is something that's affecting a lot of folks as we go through the COVID-19 crisis. And many folks are now starting to work from home. Many teams that haven't been remote in the past are now working remote. So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how real-time operations is impacted by that shift to remote. Alex, maybe do you want to kick off that discussion? Any thoughts there? I think uh, uh, on the technical side, on the engineering side, on the operations side, we are fortunate in that we're a bit ahead of the curve. That we've been, you know, if you think back to the last 20, 30 years, we started with data center environments and with folks needing to be on site to uh, folks needing to be uh, in the office on the corporate network. And now, uh, more recently, we've, we've had remote access tools and VPNs. And then there's uh, more digitally native companies that don't even have a real office network anymore and everything's in the cloud. And PagerDuty as, as a company, we're on that latter stage where we are fortunate to be one of the digital natives. But even if uh, you're, you're in that previous generation, you, you know, we have the tools to VPN in to, to work remotely from anywhere. And with the advent of mobile as well, now we have apps for all of our critical business applications like Salesforce and reporting applications and things like ADP for, for benefits. So, so we're in a good spot where we can, we have the tools necessary to, to work remotely. I think the, the biggest challenge and the biggest gap for us are, is going to be around the culture of remote work. Cause if you, if you don't have teams that are used to that, if you don't have individuals who are used to that, it's going to be challenging for them. You know, I, I can speak for myself. I, I do like the routine of coming into the office every day and uh, having that, that commute time to, to prepare for your day and having that separation between, um, between work life and uh, home life. And that's, that's mostly gone away. And it's been a little bit of an adjustment for, for me personally. And I, I can think of other folks who now with schools being canceled, all, all their, uh, their kids are home as well. And things can get pretty crowded. I don't have any kids yet, but uh, some of the parents on the call, I'd love you know if you guys can chime in and talk a little bit about that aspect of, of working remotely. You know, I have to say that I think that it's going to be interesting, the changes that we see in the world as to how we integrate our families into our work lives based on this, because it is a complete new world for a lot of people of having their kids at home with them. I'm really lucky because I have a 16-year-old who will be very happy to watch YouTube videos on Minecraft all day long, but I did something today uh, as his schools got canceled today, and I packed him his lunch. So I packed his lunch, I put it in the fridge for him so that he didn't interrupt me throughout the day. Um, he also knows that when my door is shut, he's got to 
have some separation. That's a little bit different for me. Uh, Maddie, you've got some little ones. How does that look for you? So a lot of it is, you know, I'm I'm fortunate. And I think I think something that bears mentioning is that a lot of folks who are in a remote situation because of COVID-19 is this is this is not normal remote work, what what most people are are handling right now because it's everybody all at once. But like I've been a remote worker for a very many years. And so my kids grew up with this. In fact, I don't think my kids would even understand what it would mean for me to go into an office. So, but a lot of that is training around either you know, have a uh, if you have the ability to have a place with a door, that's great. And then you can say, "Hey, when the door is shut, I'm working." It's not just because I'm home; I'm 100% available. But you don't always have that. So, a trick that I've done is, uh, and my kids now are have a little more cognizant uh, awareness of when I'm doing certain things, and, and they're a little more respectful of interrupting. But what I used to do is, I used to wear a special baseball hat if I was going to be in the main room, and it was like if Daddy had that hat on. He was working, and for all practical purposes, I was invisible. And that worked about half the time, but that's better than none of the time. And I think the other thing just to keep in mind, while you normally wouldn't have children interrupting you when you're sitting in the office at the workspace or whatever, that's a little bit of the reality of it. And same thing with cats and dogs and things like that. And that's just part of the remote work experience and being aware of that with your colleagues uh, especially when they're in a non-ideal remote situation, I think is a place we can have a lot of empathy for, right? And and it also makes things a little more personal. You get to know your your coworkers a little bit better if their dog is jumping up in frame all the time, and as long as it's not distracting. I think that's the other thing too. When I think about how our real time work is changing, folks are maybe used to being able to walk around the office and just go go hit up somebody and ask for an update or things like that. So that's a little bit of that culture change that Alex was was talking about. Besides the remote stuff, though, like what, Julie, what else have you learned in your time at PagerDuty that you'd, that you'd love to share? The biggest thing for me in talking to all of these companies and hearing talks at conferences, but more so what keeps getting brought up over and over in meetings is that every organization feels they've got a very unique story to tell, but it's not as unique as they may think. A lot of these organizations... They, they may have a different journey, but they're still on kind of the same, same level uh, as to what they deal with. Uh, you know, one of the big things is, is hybrid ops and that that's a, a thing, you know, where you've got organizations that, you know, grew up with this legacy and monolithic systems and then they're building things now the DevOps way and, and people really struggle with communicating with each other in those organizations and, and how do they do that and how do they share information? I would say that that's that's really my biggest learning so far. Yeah, I would echo that. In talking to customers, I think a lot of folks are dealing with inherent challenges. And I think as an IT industry, a lot of us are dealing with the same problems and we don't always realize it. Not to go back to remote work, but for example, that shift to remote work, right? Suddenly, everybody is talking about this. And I think it's the same when it comes to real-time operations. This is a problem that everyone is having. And many organizations are still you know, trying to wrap their minds around how that works. So some of these stories are, you know, like Julie said, maybe not as unique as you think they are. I think I'm going to switch gears a little bit and say that the thing that I learned, um, Matt called out to a little bit earlier. So he's right. I do have a background as a first responder. And one of the things that has really floored me is just how much of the things you learn as a first responder, apply to managing real-time operations. And a lot of that comes down to preparedness, 
right? To having a plan, to knowing what you're going to do when those unexpected surprises come up, right? And again, somewhat timely, like the topics we've been talking about, COVID-19, for example, right? When these things occur, you need to have a plan for how you're going to respond, what happens if you can't come into the office, how things are going to shift, right? And I think a lot of us were caught off guard, but The thing to understand about having a plan is you cannot possibly plan for all of these things. There's no way that a year ago we would know that this is what we would be going through in, you know, Q1 of this year, right? But what you can have is you can have repetition and practice around what happens when a type of crisis occurs, right? Who responds? Who's going to take point on figuring out what the official responses from the company, who's going to take point on internal communications, who's going to take point on figuring out just the landscape of things that, you know, we haven't thought about in this type of crisis. And again, like from an incident commander perspective, right, who is going to just make sure that the process is moving along effectively. And so having a plan is not about following that plan to the letter, right, because we never know what we're going to expect. Real-time operations is completely unpredictable, But what is important is just knowing how you might approach a situation like something we could reasonably infer, right? Like we might have some reason that a a thing occurs and, you know, an office gets shut down, whether that's a natural disaster or, you know, this big super bug and epidemic that came out of nowhere. Um, How do we respond to things like that, right? You can't plan every detail and you don't have to. You just have to have a general idea of what you would do so that in the moment you work spontaneously and you work quickly to get to resolution. George, one of the things that I love that you said there was about practicing. And we've done a couple of episodes on chaos engineering, but practicing in the terms of what we talk about at PagerDuty with incident response. If you have an incident, you know, it's a P1 or a SEV1 and it gets downgraded, you treat it like it's a real incident so that you can practice and doing that with your postmortems. And I think that you're right. We can't predict everything, but taking every opportunity to practice what we do know will help us in those times of, of uncertainty. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So, for myself, um, I have I've learned many, many, many things in the last eleven years of starting and and building PagerDuty. So, I'm going to pick one thing that that really stands out, and it relates to what Julie was talking about earlier around um, around hybrid ops. So, early on in our journey, we started with a lot of customers that were digital natives like ourselves. Uh, they were cloud first. They had a pretty homogeneous environment. They had adopted DevOps and SRE practices, and uh, they became great customers for us because they had software and, and production systems that they needed to run. They were pretty effective at managing uh, their production systems and setting setting up on-call schedules and and response processes. And they they helped us in in developing our our product and our vision early on. And then over time, we started. Uh, getting larger customers, enterprise customers, uh, and that's where that's where hybrid ops comes in because a lot of the enterprises we work with have been around for many decades. They have a lot of on-prem systems. They have their own data centers. Uh, they have legacy systems that they have to maintain, sometimes even on mainframes. But they also have uh, the newer digital systems that they've been building uh, with a cloud-first containerized architecture. So they have 
kind of uh, both. They have the legacy systems and they have the new systems. They have central operations and an operation center that's run 24-7, but they also have teams that are DevOps-oriented that uh, build and run and maintain their own systems. So that's that's what HybridOps is all about. It is the situation that these companies are in, that they're, they need to operate in both modes at the same time while uh, working on modernizing uh, their older applications. And, and that's a big challenge that, that a lot of our customers are dealing with. And it's also a cultural challenge because you have um, more traditional operations culture coexisting with a more DevOps, nimble, agile culture at the same time. So how do you make those teams talk to each other? How do you avoid siloing? And how do you avoid like the them versus us type of problem? Uh, and, and kind of create some cohesiveness across and some transparency and some visibility across across those two those two modes of working. And that's that's a challenge that we're working with a lot of customers about. We're advising them on how to how to move stuff to the cloud, how to transition, how to uh, modernize their operations and improve their operational maturity while while coexisting and understanding that this kind of a transition is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take potentially many years for it to happen. On the show, there are two things we ask every guest. Uh, Maddie, since this is your last show as a PagerDuty employee, we're going to ask you the question. questions. So the first question is, what is one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? That's great. You know, I think about this a lot, this particular topic that I'm about to share. And it might come as a surprise for, for those of you who know me for the last you know, seven, eight years of being such a proponent of the DevOps movement and everything. But the majority of my career as a sysadmin, I felt like my job was to protect the company from the developers, right? So I, I thought that my big job was that developers were always trying to mess stuff up. And my goal was to play total like blue team against them and figure out all the ways they were going to try to get around all my safeguards and and defend production from developers. And if I had gotten my mind in this more DevOps mode sooner, not only would I probably have been more effective for the organizations I worked with, I probably would have had more friends among software engineers. (laughs) Yeah, you and I wouldn't have been friends at that time of your life. No, no, no. And and last question, is there anything about running software in production that you're glad I never asked you during your time at PagerDuty? I am really happy that in all the time I've worked for you, Alex, you have never asked me to do anything with regular expressions. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I can do it, but it's ugly and it's slow and I have to cheat a lot. <laughs> I can't believe that anybody. regex is such a thing for you, Maddie. How are you supposed to swing in on a rope and save the day? Well, because I have um, the, all the nice little cheater things. Uh, like regex replaced subnetting for me in the thing that I had to cheat at. Right, as a network engineer, I like everybody thought I was really good at subnetting, but it was because I had cheats. And regex is the same way. So <laughs> don't ask me about subnetting IPv4 and don't ask me about regular expressions. And you will think I'm awesome. Well, with that, we want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to us today. If you want to know more about some of the things that we talked about, you can go to our ops guides. Um, we talked about response.pagerduty.com today and postmortems.pagerduty.com. There will be links in the notes. Thank you for your time. And this is Scott McAllister. This is Matt Stratton. 
This is George Miranda. This is Alex Solomon. And this is Julie Gunderson, wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of this show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.